Hello and welcome to the ninth and final episode of the third season of Web Perspectives. My name is Sean, and in this episode, Mike and I sit down in person with Mitch Willis, a longtime technical writer and consultant. Mitch runs his own business, Cohort Technical Communications, helping developers write clear and concise documentation. Mitch has worked for many years writing technical documents and has worked for clients such as KBC, Interpipeline, Talisman Energy, and NMAX. How well does document control work, and how does it differ from versioning? How can developers write concise documentation, and what makes good documentation in web development anyway? How much testing should documentation go through before it gets released to the public? And how can developers best manage changes in the software development maintenance lifecycle? And what about changes to requirements? How many versions of documentation make sense for differing audiences? Is self-documenting code a myth, or do we still need documentation before we deliver our final product to other developers? And finally, how can web developers learn to do technical writing and documentation? We find out all these answers and some very, very useful tips in this one hour and 20 minute episode of Web Perspectives. Hello and welcome to Web Perspectives, the go-to podcast for instant web development tips, tricks, career advice, and ways to supercharge your web development career. Put the soft skills back into software and supercharge your web development career. So uh, we are here in the office of Mike. This is exciting. We're live. We're live. And we have our guest here, Mitch. Hello there. We had to do this lot. We had to do this episode, Sean. <laughs> we we it had to do it. It's is actually very beautiful. We can actually see the sunset here in the city of Calgary, of course, behind the antiquated Shaw sign, which apparently Shaw was bought out, right, here in Calgary. Well, Rogers is like buying out Shaw. Yeah, that uh, iconic Shaw sign just might be leaving us. Who knows? Yeah, like, well, the skyline changes all the time. I remember driving along Crowfoot Trail here in Calgary and looking at the skyline and thinking, oh, it's actually quite beautiful. One of my friends said, oh, it changes all the time. So therein lies the point. Shaw will soon disappear in favor of some other sign that represents our beautiful city of Calgary. So Mitch, this episode is all about documentation and you are a well-seasoned technical writer. Can you take us back? What got you started in technical writing? Do you remember? Yeah, I started out as a journalist. My first job out of school was a newspaper reporter at a weekly paper up in Athabasca there. No kidding. And yeah, and just to back up a bit, went to school in Ottawa and then was trying to get into the journalism program. And you had to have like basically 100% average to get in there because people come from all across Canada, go to Carleton School of Journalism. Oh, wow. And I was not a motivated student, not in the slightest there. So after I graduated with mediocre marks, I'm like, what now? My parents like, you're coming back home, and we're going to send you to Lethbridge Community College. And there, you're going to take the print journalism program. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> makes sense to me. So I went and did that, and then became one of the editors of the school paper there. And they had the editor of the Lethbridge Herald, Bill Whitelaw. He taught some of the classes. He got me into the Lethbridge Herald to do page layup. Okay. So I was laying out the city page there. And then Bill's moved up here now, and he's some big-time publishing icon. You see him on Instagram all the time there. So brilliant man, learned a ton from him. Mm -hmm. So went and did that, went to Athabasca, 
working, you know, hundred hours a week for twenty four grand a year in like nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. <laughs> yeah. And that is not conducive to anything resembling a balanced lifestyle. So I said, Well what else? What else am I gonna do? Uh, and this was, you know, right when the tech bubble was getting dangerously large and I should have been paying attention to that. Went to West Edmonton Mall one day and walked past the down Europa Boulevard there. And there they had a CDI college. You guys familiar yeah. with CDI? Yeah, there's one just down the road here yep. in Calgary. Yeah. And so I went in there, and I said, I want to do something. And they're like, well, what do you want to do? The choices were programming or network admin. <laughs> right. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so they ran me through um, an aptitude test, and they said, according to our aptitude test, you'd be a good programmer. And I'm like, huh? I don't know anything about programming. I thought maybe I would have been better networker because my math is terrible. And they're like, actually, your math scores were pretty good on this. So that was confusing. <laughs> so did that, and then the tech bubble bursts, and I'm like, oh, darn. Oh, you know, bad timing. Yeah, no, and <laughs> terrible timing. No one's hiring programmers. Yeah. No one's hiring network admins. And yeah, i got to be diplomatic here so I don't get sued. When you first graduate from school, no one is going to give you the keys to their network and say, hey, administer this network. It's never going to happen. Right. What you're going to do is you're going to do hard time on a TELUS or a Shaw help desk and get yelled at by angry customers. And didn't want to do that. Programming, couldn't figure it out to save my life. You know, there's the pseudocode, if this, then that. Mm -hmm. I could get that, but then translating that into actual coding syntax, not a clue. The HTML I could figure out, and I understood what CSS was, yeah. but the other stuff, no. So I'm one day I'm looking at the job board there, trying to figure out what I'm going to do, and it says technical writer. And I'm like, hmm, I like technology. I can write. <laughs> I have no idea what this is, so I'm going to go apply for the job. Okay. So I'm preparing for the job interview. I'm like, I probably should do some research. So right downstairs was the, at the end of Europa Boulevard was the chapters in West Edmonton Mall. So I bought technical writing for dummies. <laughs> right. And, oh, right. Yeah. And so I, I <laughs> wow. reading through that, learning very quickly, learning on the job. Okay. And then uh, I got on with this place in Edmonton and they sent me all over the U.S. So oh, I wow. was in, I was in Laredo. I was in Salt Lake City. How long in each place would so you be? You, you'd be there about two weeks. You were supervising the setup of the software that the client had purchased. Okay. Oh. It was a plasma collection software. Okay. It was done in ancient Oracle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For Oracle Forms? Does that ring a bell? Maybe I'm getting that wrong. I've never worked with Oracle. This is like the Java thing where you'd like have to like open up your Java instance, run it locally on your machine. It's like the Java applet thing. I think it may have even been older than that. I mean, this was some dinosaur stuff back in the day. So again, it's like 1999, 2000, 2001 oh. in there. Oh, yeah. So I was doing the technical writing, traveling around, supervising the setup of this software. And then you know, after about two years, it wasn't conducive to really balance lifestyle when you're traveling all the time. You know, when you realize that you've been on the road for a month and you've paid a month's rent for the place oh. that you never stayed in. Yeah, yeah. Right. It was great in being able to fly first class and getting bumped up. Oh, and cool. You know, you fly in on a Sunday and there wouldn't be any rental cars left, so they would upgrade you to like a Lincoln Town car. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I'm driving around <laughs> yeah. like a senior, you know, some a senior citizen or 80-year-old grandpa would be driving. <laughs> so there was that. And then I quit that job. 
And then I went more into the IT side of things because I'm like, IT is where the money is, and that's the path to happiness. Chase money. Yeah. And I thought, Oracle, Oracle DBAs, those are in demand right now. That's elite level ninja stuff. So I thought, I'm going to do that. And I'm like, no, I'm terrible at this. Absolutely <laughs> terrible. <laughs> And then I went and did the help desk thing. I'm abbreviating things in the interest of time. Got my A+, got my Network+, plus, MCSA, and Windows 2000. So I enjoyed the technology. I liked it, but I wasn't very good at it. Okay. But what I was good at was writing about it, taking the complex stuff and simplifying it, making it easier to understand. Okay. And so that's why I thought, you know what, I need to get back. I need to get back into that. So about 2010, I started transitioning back into that. And was in Edmonton. It was an extended period of unemployment. And I thought, well, I got to start looking a little further afield. So I started applying to places in Calgary and uh, applied at Smart Technologies, and they snapped me up. Oh, nice. Oh, I remember Smart Technologies. I used to work with a guy. Uh, he w used to work there. Anyway, it seemed like a really nice place. I don't think they're around anymore, are they? They're still around. Well, they, they're still around, but they are a different configuration of what they used to be. They were bought out by, I think, I believe it was Foxconn, the folks that assemble the iPhones. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's that whole controversy about Foxconn <laughs> way back in like 2011 with the iPhone manufacturing process. Yeah, I mean, this was the place where they put the netting outside the windows because people would jump yeah. out. I'm talking about Foxconn <laughs> right. Right, I remember in this. China, not, uh, not yeah. smart technologies here. So. Yeah. So I was there for a while, met a gazillion people. There's a lot of folks. If you go and look at them on LinkedIn, a lot of them have done a stint in smart and just kept doing that. Got laid off at Christmas of 2012, along with about 400 other people there because they yeah, were. I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. That sucked. But my mentor, who I used to work with at smart, he ended up over at NMAX and he's like, you're coming with me. Nice. And so I went and got incorporated and got the insurance and all that stuff there. And um, so beginneth the contractor's journey as a technical writer. Right. We've had a number of conversations already in the past about mm -hmm. documentation. And, and we've done a couple of jobs on the side together as well. Mm -hmm. One of the main things that we really rally together on is this concept that technical writers love writing documentation. And the thing that developers hate the most is writing documentation. <laughs> and when I met somebody who loves doing that and would take on that role, it was like, yes, please. It was like my, my soul brother from another mother. That's here. right. That's right. <laughs> I loved it. It was so good. So having somebody come on board and help craft the documentation that I was trying to write at the time, not right. only did I get that job done better and faster than I normally would, so there was less hours put into it total. I ended up making a little bit more money on piecework, which was great. But I also learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about tonight is like all of those things that I learned from, okay. from you because I'm going to be getting back into it again and a little refresher would be helpful. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show tonight is because I think anybody listening is going to learn those same things and they're going to be able to take them forward. And if they have to, absolutely positively have to write any kind of technical documentation, at least they'll be able to do a better job of it. So... Before we get into a lot of the hardcore, nitty-gritty, dirty stuff, let's talk about the need for documentation first. Yeah, that was exactly my question, too. Why? Why is it so important All to right. have? I was thinking about this on the walk over from the LRT, and I think it's two things. First, because organizational memory is short. What do you mean by organizational memory? Well, the collective memory in a company, in an okay. organization. Okay. You know, there's organizational maturity theory. There's all sorts of models out there about that that study how 
mature a organization is. And one of those things that contributes to maturity is the degree of documentation they have. Oh, really? You look at a startup, for instance, and the startups, they're flying by the seat of their pants. They're going on fear and Red Bull, <laughs> and that's what keeps them going. But eventually it gets to a point where the company grows enough where they're like, we got to write stuff down or we are going to be in a world of hurt. Do you know any of the particular, like I do, I focus on startups, so I have a few ideas in my head right now, but I'm wondering if you're aware of any of the particular moments in the growth of a startup that really trigger that, ah, we got to write this down. Well, I'm always going to argue from day one, you should be writing stuff down, but I have bashed my head against the wall on that to the extent where it was one time quite bloody, <laughs> but the do or die moment seems to be at about 3000 people. I mean, obviously that's not a startup, mm -hmm. but once you get to about 3000 people, you have to write something down. People have to know what's going on, have to know what's expected of them there. So I'll jump in. Yeah. Sometimes in smaller companies, it's usually the, the onboarding process starts to become too much of a pain in the ass for one employee to sit with another employee that's new mm -hmm. and walk them through everything. And sometimes documentation can really help bring things up to speed yeah. faster. Okay, gotcha. Another one of those times is design changes. When you try and design something using HTML, CSS, yeah. you have the cascading style sheets and you're always going to be changing things at top level to try and have as many changes filter through the site as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. We craft it that way in startups specifically so that we can do the rapid changes. Mm -hmm. It's those rapid changes in the way that we structure things in startups that lead to the necessity for documentation sometimes because no one can remember one million lines of code. No one can. No. And so you start to lose track of what does this file do? What does the variable in this line of code, in this function, right. actually do? And how is that going to impact things on the other way? And so documenting the architecture of not only the style, but of the code as well is a good thing. So the original question was organizational memory. And you were talking about it there. You're like, no one can remember 87 gazillion million lines yeah, of code. Right. And I mean, look at all the layoffs that have happened here since like 2015. All right, so you have a whole bunch of people working for you, mm -hmm. and then it comes time to lay people off, and then you know sign this so you can get your severance yeah. check, and then they get marched out the door. Yeah. Are there any exit interviews? No. Was there any attempt to take your senior people and vacuum the contents of their mind and put it down on paper for business continuity? No. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was getting at through uh, organizational memory and why it's so short. Business continuity is a big one for sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah exit interviews, if, if anybody is listening and they maybe are in a situation where they have been laid off or will potentially be laid off, if you do, then take that time to do that whole memory dump, <laughs> to take all those things you've learned and try to succinctly summarize them for your colleagues because you're basically this huge encyclopedia, especially by the time you've worked at a company for almost three years. Take that time and it will pay off. So... Yeah, I would, I would agree there. Yeah. I mean, it's a thankless position, but you're going to leave the people behind in a much better state yeah. than they otherwise would have if you just waltz out the door with your severance check and then go off to the bank to deposit it there. So organizational memory is short. And also the second one is that most places are woefully understaffed. So you've got somebody doing the work of one and a half to two people there, and they are just an adrenaline spike all the time. And so there's no way you can remember everything. There's no way that you're going to recall where stuff is. So if things are written down in, say, an operations manual, or if there's procedures, 
or processes, or perhaps there's a wiki that you could go and consult, then you're going to be in much better shape. And I think also, you know, of the small business owners, if you have a franchise, okay, say you have a Starbucks or a Subway or something like that, if it's not all written down, it's going to require your constant intervention. You're going to have to be on all the time, and that's going to burn you out. Right. Like in our trip up the elevator there, we were talking about mental health and burnout and stuff like that. This is a step that can prevent you from burning out. And uh, if anybody's ever read The E-Myth, Revisited, in there, it's a poorly written book in my opinion, but the message is the important thing and the need for systems and systematizing things. And that's going to make life a lot easier for you. You shouldn't have to work the 60, 70, 80 hours a week if you systematize things. And writing things down is one way to do that. I mean, how do you like recipes? I think you saw what I posted on LinkedIn the other day there about recipes. Why is there a recipe? So you can cook the same thing the same way all the time and have it taste good. Okay, why is there a procedure? So you can perform that procedure the same way all the time, and there's no variation. It's the official company-mandated way of doing something. And so you, it's a way of ensuring consistency and ensuring a consistent customer experience. Having worked through that process on the documentation side, uh, a couple times now with some medium-sized and larger companies, one of the experiences that I had was sitting in a boardroom with a bunch of very high-level people and then asking them, okay, step-by-step, step, how is this thing done? And none of them knew. Not one of them actually could sit there in the boardroom and list, okay, step one, first you go to the, where do you go? Yeah. No I, one knew. <laughs> I've had and, a similar thing happen to me where I had somebody on my management asked me how to perform some task and it involved a lot of backend changes. And I, as a front end web developer, I had very little idea of our understanding of how these things worked. So while I could explain the part that concerned me and my day to day work, I couldn't explain the other piece of the puzzle, which is arguably even more important because, you know, whatever's behind that black box is almost more important than whatever you see on the client facing application, arguably. Yeah. It was so the, it was the process. Yeah, and you end up going to like Confluence in the case of my last position, you go to Confluence or Team City or something, <laughs> you know, there are a thousand systems that do the mm -hmm. same thing. And then you try to find some understanding. But oftentimes, at least in my experience, I would see these convoluted diagrams, like engineering diagrams, like ERDs or entity relationship diagrams, which basically show like the different pieces come together. You ever watch like Silicon Valley where they're drawing on the whiteboard and they have all these different boxes and they're connecting things with arrows and, and it's like I, I, a thousand different pieces and like whatever microservices and I oftentimes get lost even with that. So I guess from my side of things, I definitely relate to that, but I also wonder like how can we simplify that information for somebody, for example, who sits in a boardroom or somebody in management who, or a stakeholder who might not understand fully the inner workings of a very complicated system. Yeah, and this is where you need to go high level, like context diagrams and stuff in business analysis. So you want to have a look at that. And then if you're talking to stakeholders or sponsors or something, I wouldn't expect them to know the minutiae of stuff. This is where it's important to get in with a subject matter expert. And I'm going to say, obviously, you explain to them what you're going to do. And like, we're going to go through this step by step by step. And what I find is more often than not, the subject matter experts are ecstatic to support you because this is one less thing for them to do. And they get to talk about their situation, which they know expertly. 
they are intimately familiar with every aspect, every step of this. So I would consult with subject matter experts first. And then, you know, any, I mean, the golden rule of, of writing is to consider who your audience is. So if you're writing for sponsors, if you're writing for VPs, executives, stakeholders, you want to keep things very high level. But you also want to be able to speak to things in detail if they decide to get granular. Because every once in a while, they'll go and they'll bungee jump off to test something and see how deep your knowledge and understanding of it is. But, uh, I mean, these are people for whom your meeting is one of 15 things they're doing in the course of a day. So consider the flow charts, consider the swim lane diagrams, the context diagrams, and things like that to create things at a higher level for them. How do you identify the important stakeholders to talk to? Is there a process for that? Yeah, what I would do, especially with project-based work, is I would talk to the project manager to start out with. And first thing, I'd, I'd read the project charter. Go through that and read that and note the names. Look at the sponsors. And then the project manager, most of them are pretty tuned in. And they can be an invaluable resource, provided you do everything you can to make their life easy. And I pride myself on my relationship with both my subject matter experts and the stakeholders. So talk to them. They'll point you in different directions and then you know they'll tell you to go over here. But you'll find out this person is not quite the right person or this person only knows 40% of it. But through doing some investigation on your own, then you'll find out who the right people are. So know your audience, number one. Yeah, know your audience when you're writing anything yeah. and adjust accordingly, depending on what they need to know. It's like when I was ranting to Ryan there, who's your audience? What do they need to know? What do they need to do? How do you want them to think? How do you want them to think? I'm not familiar. Like the, the first ones make sense to me on the surface. Yeah. But how do you want them to think? What's well, I mean, I, it would depend on the subject, again, that you're writing on. So how do you want them to think? Perhaps you're trying to change an attitude about something. Okay. Perhaps you're trying to be as it's trying to be a persuasive bit of writing. Okay. Like you as a developer are trying to persuade other developers about the virtues and the merits of writing things down and documenting things. Okay. okay. So as part of your preamble, as part of your sketching out what you're going to write, what do I want them to know? Why do I want them to know it? What are the possible constraints or resistance that I may encounter in doing that? Okay. So one of the things that you're trying to accomplish not just thinking about the target audience, but the target mindset of the audience as well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, nobody wants, one of the things that was hard for me, for my ego to get used to is nobody wants to read what I write. They're reading what I write because something went wrong. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And uh, they need to get back to work. You know, I liked, oh, Mitch, that sentence is just exquisite. The way you strung <laughs> those words. <laughs> not the case at all. Banish that thought from your mind there. It's um, about finding what they need and getting back to work quick, fast, in a hurry there. You're, you're creating reference material. All right. Well, what, now we get to get into some nitty-gritty stuff. Okay. All right. What are some of the best ways to help people find that fast? How to find stuff? Okay. So if you're doing something online, meta tags. Yeah. Um, like uh, ServiceNow. I, I did a whole bunch of... Um, knowledge-based articles in the knowledge management portion of ServiceNow. And in doing that, there's a great big space to meta-tag stuff. Meta-tag the hell out of it. Every, you stop and think about what somebody would type in and do that. You know, if if you spend, if you have 25, 30, 40 tags in there, you're helping them find that stuff. Okay. It sounds a lot like SEO almost. It's kind of, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that. That's a whole other subject. Oh, we say meta. We don't mean the same thing, but yeah. Yeah, similar. It's it parallels. 
And then when it comes to documents, no, it's a simple thing. Number pages. Put a table of contents in there. One of my rules oh, is yeah. if you've got more than 10 pages, put a table of contents in. Okay. I have yet to put an index in. I don't think you need to do that unless you're creating like a textbook. Okay. Um, what else? Headings. A clear hierarchy of headings. Heading one, two, three, four. Actually, just three headings. Sorry. I mean, if you're getting more than three headings, then I would suggest that you need to reevaluate how you're organizing a document. Wow, this is this sounds a lot like SEO already. <laughs> if I was to take all the same advice and apply it to SEO, I think I would get similar results as well. So if somebody's got some experience doing some on-site SEO stuff, they probably have some yeah. chance at bringing that in to help. I out wonder if with they're some yeah documentation. Stuff. I'm just I'm drawing the similarities here. It sounds very similar to me, but yeah, please go on. What else? Also, once you have the thing done, user test it give it to somebody and read it and nobody does this give it to someone and be like does this make any sense at all or is this just a bunch of incomprehensible babble to you so you're going back to the original stakeholders and getting their feedback on i I would okay so i'm i'm speaking about how to make it easier to find stuff okay so i'm speaking to that and if you user test it with someone and they're like yeah no it's all good you know then I think that validates there that you set it up correctly and that things are easy to find. Okay. Intuitive, you know, intuitive folder structures and stuff like that when you're building stuff online, you know, information architecture. But that is 58 podcast conversations just (laughs) talking about uh, information architecture. Now you're talking about the sponsors, and this is where I'm jumping all over the place like a fool here. If you're bringing something back to your sponsors, to sign off on to get to that next step, I would do like an outline. Outline something in Microsoft Word there. Bring that back to them. Be like, look, this is what I'm thinking. And then, you know, get sign off on that. Okay. How long, <clears throat> let's say we're talking about Shaw earlier in the podcast. Shaw is a pretty large organization. And they have locations all across the country. Yep. They have a number of different projects. How would a technical writer do anything inside of an organization that big without feeling completely overwhelmed at the size of the task at hand. Yeah, I mean, that's where you got to scope stuff. And if you're on a project, well, then the scope is very narrow. It's already been determined. You're working with a project manager and they've drawn the circle and you're working on everything that's in the circle. Now, if you're working on operation stuff, there's still going to be a scope there. We need you to do 10 procedures for IT data restoration or something like that. So I think once you understand the scope, statement of work, all that stuff, and have talked to the project manager, then I see them queuing you in, and that should avoid any sort of overwhelm. Oh, okay, good, good to know. Another thing too, like if you have a lot of documents, I had one gig where I had over 200 documents I was working on at one time. Okay, glad and, it was you, not me. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I enjoyed the challenge. Because I'm like, okay, how am I going to do this? Come on. This is time for Mitch to rise to the challenge there. So yeah. found some Excel spreadsheets from some uh, book. It was called The Technical Writing Process. And I would strongly encourage anyone who has an interest in technical writing to pick that book up. It's giving away trade secrets, but you're going to oh, benefit okay. from it. Wow. And so in there, they had a kind of like a status report, a status sheet there. It had the red, the yellow, the green. You put your deliverables in there and you could increase the percentages according to how far along you are. And project managers love this. Program managers love it even more. It builds confidence in them. It makes them look good when they can report this stuff. 
And uh, that's what I used to keep these 200 documents in shape. And that was a way to avoid being overwhelmed because I was on like five or six projects at once. And you have to take measures to be organized or you're going to be completely steamrollered. Okay. Yeah. When, you, when you have a volume uh, like that. Yeah. We're often put in those positions ourselves, regardless of what our role is in the company, where overwhelm is a real concern. Mm-hmm. And I try to bring up the question in a number of our interviews, just because everybody has a way to deal with it, mm-hmm. depending on their perspective. And everybody has some advice to give. And over the course of the three seasons now, understanding your position, understanding the role mm-hmm. and who your people are on your team. Mm-hmm. That's some really great advice there for yeah, sure. Yeah, scope all boils down to understanding what your scope is. Anything that's inside that circle, you're responsible for. Anything that's outside the circle, don't care. Right. Good you time. know, that's somebody else's concern or problem. And that's, I think, a piece of advice I would really give to a youngster, you know, someone who's just breaking in for the first time. Yeah, you're going to be overwhelmed by things. That's natural figure out what the scope is. All right. Getting back into the weeds a little bit. This was a fun conversation. How many different colors of text should you use in a technical document? I have seen technical documents that look like Skittles. Yes. (laughs) And I I think there's no need for that. It's jarring. It brings extraneous cognitive load that you just don't need. So if you're going to have colors, it should be in a table it should be in an image. There's no reason why you should have a page that's black text, green text, red text, yellow text. You know, if you're doing safety training for something like that, for instance, you could have warnings being in red. But I have told you this before, I've seen things where in knowledge base articles, where the text is huge, 50, 60 point text, it's bolded, it's red, it's underlined and then there's a yellow <laughs> there's a yellow backdrop there if everything's bold nothing's bold right. you know you should use things like italics and bolding things very sparingly okay should be used for emphasis it's important that you read this document you maybe you could put down it's important and put that in italics i think we could all take a lesson for uh, building our web pages and take the same advice yes like, like it's called EM emphasis. It's not the I, t- it used to be the I tag, but they changed it to the emphasis tag because it's emphasis. If you make everything italic, if you make everything bold, it has no meaning. So mm-hmm. use that sparingly. I love that as a piece of advice, even for structuring our content for the web in general, not just for documentation. Mm-hmm. Well, at the end of the day, the web is pretty much documentation. Isn't Yeah. <laughs> One, it's just a different way of looking at it. Yeah, I like that, yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, like, um, like studying like how the eye goes across the page is interesting there. Because in a, in a printed page, like a newspaper, it's like a Z shape. It starts in the top left corner, goes over to the right, goes down like this, and then goes over, finishes in the bottom right-hand corner. Right. And then on the web, it's like an F. So you go like this, and then like that. For those who are listening, I'm, yeah. I'm drawing out, <laughs> tracing out an F on the table here. So Z for printed material versus an F for something online. So I always found that interesting too. I like the idea of really limiting the amount of colors, especially for people who might have difficulties seeing certain colors. 
I think that becomes very important if you cater your product to a wide gamut, no pun intended, of people in the workplace and also... Yeah, accessibility. Yeah, accessibility, exactly. absolutely. Exactly. That's not something I've gone into, but I imagine that's something you guys have to consider when you're creating web pages. Well, it's absolutely. And, and like having a page full of different colors. I mean, they can be fun. I remember in the 90s or some certain oh, websites, they're just so, so flashy. Maybe you go there if you're high or something and... Oh, yeah. The dripping blood bars were famous in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't we say we were looking to have somebody uh, for the history of the web at some point on the show? I don't remember who that was, but we were looking to maybe do just a, like a few episodes about the history of the web because this goes way back. But I think one thing we have learned over like the past 10 years really is that reduce the amount of colors. And this happened with like skeuomorphism, with minimalism, and a lot of the other movements that have sort of passed by us in the last five or 10 years in terms of web design anyway. But I think all of these concepts apply very neatly as well to documenting code, maybe even more, because not just in the same way that you visit a website for information, you do so with even more urgency when you visit a page for documentation, I would argue. Mm -hmm. I mean, it all started out as hypertext, right? Hypertext markup language. HTML. Yeah. No, I I can remember back in the day in university there uh, before Microsoft bought Mosaic. And it was the whole Mosaic versus Netscape. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nothing was cross-browser compatible, I think, until jQuery came along. And then with every browser you got, like going to Netscape there, you had to go and download all these different plugins to make things work. Yeah, right. And... um, Flash, QuickTime. You guys remember ActiveX? ActiveX, also yep. fun. Yep. Yeah. yeah, ActiveX there. And there was yeah. uh, Silv- Microsoft Silver or something. Yeah, Silver, I remember that. No, 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 it was called Silver something, I don't remember. Silver Edge, maybe? Oh, no. man. I know what you're talking about, yeah. but I can't <laughs> remember what the, the full name was. We'll put it in the show notes. And uh, you would R. access R. this all with a, uh, a dial-up uh, connection. Yes. A tw- Silverlight. Tw- Silverlight. Silverlight. Silverlight, that's what it was. Yeah. A 28.8 dial-up modem in your university laptop there. Yep. God, I feel old now. Oh, man. We had a lot of colors. We had a lot of things going on at that time. And I think we still do today, but we've sort of learned to dial that down and really allow the important parts to pop out to us. And I think that really becomes more important when it comes to documentation. To understand, first of all, what the person is looking for and then cater your documentation so that you have, like you said, certain sections of the page, but then getting to the point where they can just click on something on the left-hand sidebar or something on the table of contents, find exactly what they're looking for. And hopefully, you know, it's bolded or there's like this arrow pointing to exactly what they need to know. But I think all of that is very easy to talk about, but is it as easy to do that because you have so many different situations of people coming at the documentation. So is that just a matter of talking with the project managers and the stakeholders to identify the key points that you need to convey in documentation? Well, I mean, you can definitely be a situation there where too many cooks spoil the broth. You want people to review the stuff, but when it comes to creating it, you're creating it in conjunction with the subject matter experts and they verify that it's correct. And then the sponsors sign off on it. And quite often, if the subject matter experts already signed off on it, then quite often it's just a quick signature there. You're going to have these folks who like to put their nose into everything. And well, I think this should be this way. And I think it should be that way. And it's like, okay, thank you for your input. Thank you for your time. Have a good day. We have the same conversation in startups and talking to users and doing discovery. You'll come across some very passionate people who are experiencing whatever problem it is that you're trying to solve, Mm -hmm. who insist that it must be a certain way. 
Sometimes this is the founder of the company, right? Mm-hmm. And we have those same conversations when we try to document and capture all of the learning that's going into the beginning of a be- of a process. Mm-hmm. You've been around for some of these documents that I've created for software roadmapping and things like that. Mm-hmm. We have a conversation in the user experience world around the difference between user-led or user influence, like doing exactly what the users want you to do versus allowing them to have an input but not necessarily allowing them to dictate the final product. One of the ways that we deal with that is by interviewing even more people. Does that um, for you at all? Or? No, I'm a little more authoritarian when it comes to creating the documentation. Okay. I mean, you're creating a solution to a problem. And, you know, people just, again, they just want to, how, how do I fix this? Oh, God, how do I fix this? Yeah. Okay. So you draft it. You, when you figure out what the problem is in conjunction with subject matter experts, you draft it. You make sure it's clean, clear, concise, written in plain language. You don't take 29 words to say something you could say in 12 words. You have it validated by the subject matter expert and the stakeholder, and then time permitting, you run it past the users to be like, just, hey, test drive this for me and see what you think. Then you listen to what they say. So when dealing with subject matter experts, say like a web developer who spends a lot of their time talking to other web developers and acronyms Mm -hmm. and short terms and inside jokes, how do you make sure that things like that are carried through in documentation? Okay, so if you're a web developer writing for other web developers and you're using jargon that's common, if you're talking to Sean, you guys are going to know. You're dropping obscure acronyms and stuff, and you guys are going to know that. But if you're writing for Mitch, ignorant Mitch, who doesn't know what's going on, then you want to spell that out on the first reference. Okay. I'm just going to, just for the sake of explanation, CSS. You're going to say cascading style sheets on that first reference. And then afterwards, you know, you just say CSS. But, you know, if it's 150 pages into the document Mm -hmm. and you say CSS again, you may want to spell it out again. But that's kind of a judgment call because it's been 150 some odd pages since you first enunciated it. Okay. You could also look at using things like footnotes or you could also look at having a glossary of terms. Okay. I use glossaries extensively and they're always really well received. Groovy. I love a good glossary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What about having like two different versions? Like say if your stakeholders or your investors or your product manager says, okay, well, we need one version that we can understand. And we also need another version that other developers can also communicate to each other with. Does it make sense at that point? Yeah, it could. It just depends again, what's the scope is. If the scope, Mitch, we need you to create, we have this problem and the BAs have figured out there's a problem with this particular group and they need this document to solve this. Okay, you do that. They found out there's another problem here and we need this document to do this for this group. Yeah, absolutely, you can have two different versions. Oh, it's great that you put it that way, actually. Um, Sean and I constantly reiterate on this show that developers need to understand the problem that they're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And going deep on the problem is one way that they can actually deliver a better product and a better solution as a result for whatever project it is that they're having to work on. Sounds like the same thing applies to technical writing. Mm -hmm. But of course, the main issue with having two versions is that anytime you make a change, now you have to go and update that in two places, right? It it depends. Oh, that's a great line. Yeah, let's go down here. It depends on if that's covered. It depends. (laughs) (laughs) If it's only addressed in document A, then you only have to change it in that one place. If it's addressed in document B and A, then you have to change it both places. Okay, sure. Take a little break. Well, we'll uh, come back in just a bit here and uh, we'll continue our discussion with documentation.
Okay, oh, okay, well, welcome back. We've got some beers now to recalibrate and talk Ooh. more about Podcasting the Podcasting dis- is a thirsty thing. <laughs> it's, yeah, definitely hard work. Yeah. We were hoping to pick your brain a bit more about the concept of versioning. So maybe... Yeah. All right. Um, not as complicated as people seem to think. I mean, versioning comes from document control. And that's a thing that people assume that you do as a technical writer. Technical writing and document control, two entirely different professions. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, technical writer builds the document. Document controller is like the janitor, the security guard. They store the control document, the process, the procedure, the standard, the control document. And so, it depends on how they choose to number things. You could number it by numbers, you could go by letters. Some of these things get very complex. Depends on how you choose to do things. I think one of the easiest things for you guys here uh, is look at things in terms of pre-release and post-release. So pre-release, oh, okay. it's point zero one. You know, that's the very first draft that you're working on. And as you increment it, you build it up. And you've got a lot of room there between point zero one and one. So 1.0 is your initial release. And then as you build things, it's like with software. If it's a tiny little incremental thing, it's 1.001 or it's 1.1. So, I mean, there are books out there on document control and I have read them and it's interesting, but it's not as complex as it needs to be. I'm wondering what constitutes 1.0 in your mind for a document? Well, 1.0 is something that has been, you gathered all the information you need. You've had the subject matter expert verify it and validate it. Say, yes, this is technically correct. And you've had the sponsor sign off on it and go, yep, this is good. And then after that happens, sometimes the project manager just comes in and gives his or her rubber stamp, and then that's good to go. That's released to the public. Yeah, I would imagine that doing documentation after a product gets released is far more important than the early stages of development, in my opinion. What do you think? Well, a maintenance cycle, as what I like to refer to it as after it's been released, is definitely important, and it is commonly overlooked. People are like, oh, God, it's done. Thank God. No. No, that's when you really, no, it's really like, document, right? I mean, it's like a, I used the plant metaphor with you before. Mm-hmm. All right, so you grow a plant, you water it, you prune it, you pull off the dead leaves, you fertilize it, you take the bugs off. You're constantly doing something. And you think about software. All right, well, they introduce a new feature. Okay, so that new feature changes pages 6 to 10. You need new screenshots for that. Yep. And a couple versions down the line, well, pages 15 to 25 need to change. So you have to go back and you have to fix that. So people will forget this all the time, but you need to impress upon them the importance of a maintenance cycle. Some people know it as sustainment, but coming up with a swim lane diagram. Okay, this is what we're going to do. This group needs to see this. This group needs to see that. I would say it's a project. You're going to encounter some pushback there because people don't want to, well, it's not a damn project. It is a project I maintain. You're taking something and you're fixing it and a whole bunch of people are putting their hands on it. So... I would suggest you guys to argue for a maintenance cycle for your documentation at your jobs as web developers. So oftentimes, at least when I'm working on different new software features for enterprise or for large businesses, 
I know that there's a lot of turnover in terms of when requirements change or stakeholders get back to us and tell us, no, 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 we need this. We need, let's just give a trivial example. It needs to be a red button, not a green button. So what's the point of doing a screenshot of a button that's red and it will be green later when you'll just have to go back and change that later on by the time it actually gets released. Because isn't it the case that most of the time people who actually consume the API or stakeholders actually consume the product when it's finally released as opposed to before it even gets in the hands of customers? Like, does it even matter before it reaches those people? Like, pragmatically speaking. Well, I mean, there, there's going to come a time where you need to put something on paper and then step away from it. And, oh, well, you know, deadlines are constantly changing, constantly changing. It's like, yes, but if one of your deliverables, if you committed to getting out this user guide or this wiki site or what have you there, then you have to figure out, all right, this is enough. We need to step away. There needs to be a drop dead point. You know, you guys have your come to Jesus meeting and say, look, what is the color of this button going to be? It's going to be blue. All right, we're going forward with this. And then you'll have to document that, update the screenshots, and look at everything else that it's connected to. Obviously, we know what change management is there, but I would say there needs to be document change management as well. Mm. And through document change management, you are doing the sustainment, the maintenance cycle. I, you know, It could be just another name for doing a maintenance cycle there. So if you could choose between the sustainment, as you call it, or prior to releasing software to document it at that point, which would you choose if you had to choose one? Which would be the most important for businesses? If they can only invest in one of those, which would be the most pragmatic to choose, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one there. Could you, sorry, could you repeat that one more time? So if you're a business mm -hmm. and you only have enough runway to prioritize one type of documentation, either before you release the product to the customers or what you call sustainment after, which would you advise the company do? Well, I think it depends on what you're doing. Like if you're doing a wiki, you can change that on the fly. Mm -hmm. You can update things pretty quickly. Okay. But if you're doing like say a PDF user guide, then you have to have that stuff ready beforehand. Mm -hmm. I think you're doing your customer a grave disservice if you don't have supporting materials ready for them yeah. to use the project. And some people are like, eh, minimal, viable, whatever. And they just kind of wave their hand in a dismissive way like I'm doing right now. Yeah. And off they go there. So it depends on how you're providing your support to answer your question. There's a split in the ecosystem around business to consumer versus business to business. Mm -hmm. Is there an argument to be made one way or the other as to which needs more documentation for the end user? I would say uh, business to consumer um, because the average person, you know, I mean, their knowledge, uh, their understanding of things is not what, uh, you know, somebody who in the business is who probably has that specialized knowledge. So I think when you're talking to your audience, you're considering who your audience is and you're going to special efforts, special lengths, sorry, to use plain language but not in a way that talks down to them or demeans them or you know, you're writing clip sentences. You have to pay extra special attention there. Like most of the stuff I do is B2B, so I don't have to factor that in as much. But if I was writing something for the average person, that would be a strong consideration of mine. I love that comment that you just made in there about not talking down to them. Mm -hmm. Because when it's left to developers to write in the business <laughs> to consumer, yeah. I, I have read a lot of pretty pandering type attitudes out there yeah and i mean um the developers i mean it's it's strengths in different areas 
The developer's strength is in building the software. The technical writer's strength is interpreting what the developer has done and uh, spewing that out in a way that's clean, clear, concise, legible to the consumer, the customer. I tell people I'm a translator. And it doesn't mean that the developers are lacking or deficient. It means they have strengths in different areas. Leverage your strengths to do what you're good at. I'll leverage my strengths to do what I'm good at. And then there's a beautiful synergy that comes out of that. Yeah, I don't have to write documentation. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that's fine. I mean, I, I've heard that so many times from like, you know, senior, you know, network admins and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, thank God you're here. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. I'm like, well, good. I'm here to help. I'm here to make life easier for you. I think that one of the one of the best investments any organization can make is to hire a technical writer, come in and take on that challenge, not only because you get a better product out of the end, but because it really frees up the cognitive load of the people that you want thinking about other things in your business. Yeah, and, and I, I wish more people thought the way you do because there's a real um, push there. They want technical writers to have that subject matter expertise. They want someone who's a technical writer to be um, an expert level designer. A, a graphic designer as well, you know, someone who's got auditing experience, you know, auditing a, a company to, you know, for right. are they compliant with NIST or, you know, one of these other mm -hmm. uh, security protocols and stuff. And I think what they're trying, I see what they're trying to do there. They want, you know, multiple skill sets in one person, so they only have to pay one salary. I get that. I don't think that's the right approach. You're not, when you hire me, you're not hiring me for my subject matter expertise with, you know, security or HTML or JavaScript because yeah. I don't have that. Yeah. You're hiring me for my communication expertise. And it is, it may even be better that you don't know about these very difficult or rather technical topics right because then, then you can translate for the layperson or the person who may not have that understanding in the first 200 place. 200% correct, Mr. Sean. You're reading it with the eyeballs that a client a customer that we were talking about earlier right. you know business to customer would look at it yeah. and if something doesn't make sense that's the opportunity to clear that up to get rid of that ambiguity and make sure that things are you know that 360 degree high definition view for the customers you're giving them something is that one of the weaknesses also for having somebody who is a subject matter expert write documentation because they take that step for granted yeah well i mean they, they have what's called unconscious competence Ooh. And love so that. they <laughs> just, no, love that. They, they're just blah, and yeah. they know it all. You know, they go, from, they go from A to M, but in order to get there, you have to go B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M. Right. So that's why they're not the best for creating documentation. One, they don't want to do it. They, you know, the, the exchange administrator got into that because he wanted to work with exchange. He found Exchange interesting. You know, they, they find they love computers. They didn't get into technology because they love to write about stuff. So this is where my skill set comes in. I have to pull that out of them. Okay, I'm like, I, I know that you know this, but we have to write for the average person who does not have the staggering volume of information in, in their head that you do. So, okay, so we need to go step by step. A, okay, well, they need to do this. B, okay, they need to do that. And it's painful for them, but it's a necessary step to create the supporting documentation that helps the end user leverage the product that you're putting out for them or the service or, or whatever. It's interesting that we just did an episode on imposter syndrome. Yeah. And now we're talking about how the opposite 
it can cause problems because when you're an imposter, you don't, when you're suffering from imposter syndrome, you mm-hmm. don't necessarily value how much you actually know about something. But here we're talking about subject matter experts who aren't valuing enough of what they know in order to make the documentation come together mm-hmm. for a lay user who doesn't know anything. I mean, you, you give the subject matter expert the opportunity to speak about what they know, and it's staggering the volume of information a lot of these people have in their heads. I believe it. Yeah, but bias really becomes a problem in understanding what you don't, what you know is almost important, as important as what you don't know. And having that balance there to communicate, okay, well, this is how you get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. point C, and telling almost a story of how that user experience or how that flow operates in a lot of cases brings a lot of value to the, co- to the, co- to the customer. Yeah, you right? brought up something interesting there. As a technical writer, I'm confronted every day with <laughs> the limits of my knowledge. I am humble because I am humbled every day when I talk to someone who knows what they're talking about You know, in their spheres of influence there. And it, I find that that works for me. It helps me be a better uh, technical writer there because you're, you're listening, you're learning. It makes you ask intelligent questions which in turn builds confidence in the SME to continue engaging with you. He's like, all right, he, Mitch knows this stuff at the 30,000 foot level, mm-hmm. but he asked a good question there, so I'm gonna keep going. So that's the kind of philosophy and approach I've taken. Learn that stuff, be humble, ask intelligent questions, and your subject matter experts will respond well. It sounds like you spend a lot of time interviewing people. Oh, I have, yeah. I have absolutely. I mean, you know, starting with like, like so I said, full circle back the, to the, the starting in journalism. The, the journalism there, right. yeah. You know, try interviewing an angry Mountie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. That is a hey, all the respect in the world for what those guys do and gals. Yeah. Very difficult job. I couldn't do it. Nope. But I've interviewed angry Mounties, angry politicians. I can interview an indifferent subject matter expert and I can bring them over to my side. So you're persuasive. You, you've mastered the persuasive art of communicating in, through interviews. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like what I was mentioning earlier there. I approached this with humility. I acknowledged the fact that they are experts. I said, you know, I, I, you know and I, I sense a humor as well. I said, hey, I'm here to vacuum your knowledge out of your brain and put it on paper here mm-hmm. so people know what's going on and hopefully that makes life easier for you. Right. You know, there's variations on that. Usually you get a chuckle at them. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you're doing this so I don't have to and stuff. So it works well in 99% of the cases. I mean, sometimes people just don't want to talk to you. They don't want to deal with you. And it's not necessarily anything you've done. It's they are completely oversubscribed. They are hammered flat by the amount of work they have oh, to yeah. do. Oh, yeah. We talked about this in our other episode with uh, Mark. Uh, you know, Mark yeah, Mark he, he talked about this. And mm-hmm. so, you know, with stakeholders not wanting to get involved, it's, it sounds like a similar problem of they have too much on their plates. So they don't yeah, want to have that involvement. Yeah, I mean, they don't. Yeah. No one goes to a subject matter expert and says, you know what, you got to work with this technical writer expert. So let me take, um, you know, 15 hours of work away from you so you can work with him. It's going to be like, look, you got to do all that other stuff and worked with the technical writer as well. And they're like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On top of everything else you have to do this week. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, I can see that being stressful. So you end up in a situation where they don't necessarily want to be spending time with you, and they're mostly giving it to you out of whatever. Well, they're obligated. Obligation, yeah. And so how do you 
start that conversation with them to get them engaged? Like, what do you, what, what kind well, of questions do you I, I, ask them? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it starts with a recognition that, hey, I'll hit somebody up on Teams if I don't know where they are. Hit them up right. in Teams. Hey, you know, I'm the technical writer for the ABC project. And yeah, we're going to have to, um, when I get together, you know, we're going to have to um, put our brains together and come up with some. You know, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, you're right. We'll have to do it. So then we get together. I, I make sure that I am uber prepared. Okay. That I know what the scope is. I know what the deliverable is. I'll send them questions in advance. They love that. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, send them that. And another thing, too, is with my drafts, I'll share that out. You know how you can do the at in the in the commenting? Oh, yeah. In, yeah. in Microsoft there. And if he works best at three in the morning, he can answer all of those questions I have at three in the morning. So we don't have to meet. Okay. Uh, some other people want you to take notes. Other people, they're cool if you just record it in Teams. And you're like, hey, you know, your time is extremely valuable. I recognize that. So what I'm suggesting is that we record this and we're recording it so I can get it right the first time and I don't have to come back to you and pester you. Oh, great tip right there. Yeah. And quite often people are like, yeah, okay, cool. Every once in a while you'll get someone who is really weirded out by that. Oh, yeah. And uh, you're like, hey, you know, I, my interest here is to make everybody look good. I'm not, you know, I'm a contractor. I'm not here to empire build. I'm here to deliver these deliverables. Yeah. And if that person still says they're uncomfortable with it, okay, that's fine. We will do it the old-fashioned way, taking notes. But I also tell them, hey, I, I may have to come back to you a couple of times just to validate this, if that's okay with you. So okay. you have to be extremely flexible in dealing with subject matter experts. There are some who are only available first thing in the morning. There were times where I had to get up, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock, because that's the only time you can get a hold of them, because they are just putting out fires left and right all day long, 10, 12 hours a day whatever it takes to get the document done right as long as it's not illegal right <laughs> you know i can always sleep at another time there so okay right and you come up with those questions based on the requirements from the product manager or yeah you'll, you'll look at the requirements you'll look at the charter you know you'll put stuff together and you'll yeah. be like you know i've done this fifty-eight thousand times what are the questions that instantly pop into my head okay how do we do this how do we do that what happens if you do this you know licensing you know, if the user doesn't know how to do ABC, where do they find the solution? Yeah, like stuff like that. Yeah, I, I have one question that's burning. I have to ask this question to you. What do you think about what developers called self-documenting code? Do you believe in that at all? Does it make sense? So not. Qu I'm, I'm inferring what you mean, but if you could explain a, a little bit more, if you could elaborate. Well, instead of like when we talk about documentation, a lot of times as a developer, we talk about writing for example comments oh, uh, commenting seen, like code. commenting but but to the point of well if i'm marketing my product to other developers and they're going to be looking through the source code anyway then why do i need to go ahead and write documentation when most of my users already know how to read code anyway so if they can read the code if the variables are well named if i've structured my code in an intuitive way then they can go to the method name and they can go and see that and in the same way that you have tools that generate a bunch of documentation based on a block form comment that comes before the method or the function that you create if you i don't know if any of this <laughs> makes sense but yeah so you, you just put the hand over <coughs> yeah like over, over my head yeah. there this I, I would direct that to mike on that one my understanding my very limited programming experience there is that commenting your code is a best practice Okay. And that be. you should comment your code. I mean, whatever the best practices are, 
I'm I'm because I don't yeah. know. Yeah, this is us well, we'll drawing you into our 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 hot topic. Yeah, in, in our industry. Well, that's the humbleness <sighs> coming out there. I appreciate the honesty of like, yeah, I think they might live on two different playing fields with the documentation of the code and the commenting of the code, and then the actual documentation of the process itself, right? Yeah, I think it goes back to where Mike and I fundamentally agree. Our fundamental thesis there is that when developers are talking to developers they need to document in a way that other developers understand. And then when developers develop something for a consumer to understand, that's where me, the technical writer, AKA the translator steps in. So Mm. if you're talking to Mike, then whatever the best practices are in the programming and developing world. Yeah, I think it becomes more focused on the individual organization and even in some cases, the individual teams to what that process might be. Yeah, you're going to have protocols or your own in-house best practices depending on where you work. So Yeah, some people are fans of self-documenting code and others are fans of massive amounts of comments inside the code. And there's every gradient in between. I'm reaching here, but if you can make things easier for another person to understand, why wouldn't you want to do that? I've come across people who are like, our code is so good, it's obvious what we were doing and i'm like really is that an assumption you want to make right, right. <laughs> do you want to help other people understand your code i guess is the thing yeah i remember talking to someone there about training and he's like well we've designed this so good that we don't need training and i'm like okay it's a bold claim to make i think my favorite comment about documenting codes and comment on commenting if you will mm-hmm. was sometimes that other developer is future you and you can't be expected to understand what was going through your head mm-hmm. five years ago, let alone maybe even sometimes five days ago. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard for people to be consistent. And that's why we need things like templates and style guides on the side, what I do. So if you're reading something now and you're reading something three months from now in code, you know, I think it goes back to what you're saying there that you need to write to you, future you, for you to be able to understand it. Absolutely. I leave comments for future me all the time. Good. Sometimes it's not me. Sometimes somebody else. But I try to be kind to me. If you win the lottery, if you get run over by a bus, you get eaten by a dog, um, <laughs> how can Sean pick up from where you left off? Yeah, bus factor is a real issue too. Yeah, We were constantly uh, talking about bus factor in small organizations mm-hmm. because how many people have access to the code base? Yep. Is it just the one single developer that you have in your company and Does your co-founder on the business side actually have credentials to get access to the code should you be hit by a bus? This is something that you need to know. This is Mm -hmm. something you need to have talked about. Is there a backup person that is aware of how you do what you do from maybe a previous job that you can share that with who can pick you up and help the organization continue on past you? coming all the way back for a full circle yeah. to continuity. This is continuity, right? I think it's probably more critical sometimes if you have a small team to have that at least documented to some capacity mm-hmm. and to have a business backup buddy if you're on the business side as well mm-hmm. to make sure that somebody can step in and help keep your company afloat if something terrible were to actually happen. Absolutely. agree. agree 100% there. And people don't think about this until it comes and bites them in the ass. Right and make life easier for yourself. It's like having backups but not testing them regularly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, documentation is a part of the continuity of your business. But it's not sexy at all. I mean, 
It's not data science. It's not artificial intelligence. Chat GPT. <laughs> oh, boy. Here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Well, I'll have to have a drink now for that. <laughs> but it's one of these things that's essential. It's like how insurance is essential for you. Life insurance, if you have a right. family. Right. I mean, you know, car insurance, you have to have car insurance if you're going to drive a car there. But oh, life is hard enough. Make things easy for yourself. Write it down. Write it down. One of the things that I tell future founders of software startups is to document their process. Even before they get their first money to go and build the software, but to document and journal where they were at that time and what they were thinking at that time. Because the process of writing it down makes it more real. It becomes tangible. And Mm -hmm. in the future, you can go back and you can review the initial assumptions that you were making at the time that you were documenting that particular process. And you can see the growth yeah it's like you know a person will journal for their own mental health and well-being and stuff what you've just described is like journaling for a business yeah what was going on in our heads we made that decision to commit x thousands of dollars to this purchase Uh, we thought it was going to be good because of a b and c what's the difference between a guess and a hypothesis you write down a hypothesis Mm -hmm. hypothesis is an educated guess guessing is just arbitrary i can guess that well anything but it requires no thought. It's random. It's arbitrary. Yeah, we're not going to go out here and we're not going to run our organization based on guesses. We're yeah. going to do it a different way. What were the assumptions? What was the learning that was done at the beginning that we are now operating our business mm-hmm. upon? That can be documented. Those mm-hmm. kinds of things, you might want to refer to those again in the future. Yep. Right? Because maybe you got off track somewhere. Maybe you need to go back and revisit it. Yeah, what worked and, and what didn't work. You know, especially like when you do a lessons learned. You know, at the end of every project, you're supposed to do a lessons learned. Oh, yeah. I mean, right. at the very least, that should be documented. Right. How often is it just a bunch of people sitting around bitching at each other? Oh. I've seen those happen. We talked about that we in our last. Yeah. 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 And so you guys have seen it happen as well. Yep. Yeah, and that goes back to one of the very first things I said about organizational memory. Record it because organizational memory is short. Store it in a place that everyone who is supposed to be able to access it can access it. I can remember when SharePoint was first being implemented and having to have conversations with people about, no, you shouldn't store stuff on your SATA drive, which has an average lifespan of about, what, two years? Save it on SharePoint. It's backed up every day. People can access this when you're not there. There's some gatekeeping that happens with information like that, right? There is definitely. There's gatekeeping. Not everyone needs to have access to it, but then that's up to the stakeholders to determine who needs access. I always, whenever I go into a new place, I always make sure my stuff is absolutely transparent. Everyone can have access to it, to read it, but I am the one who can edit it because there has to be controls. How do you control that? That's a you, t- you have to tell the SharePoint administrator what you want, and they okay. can set that up. So SharePoint is one really good tool to do that. Are there other tools for that? Um, I'm sure there are other tools. There's content management systems. There's links, and there's other things. We used links at, over at NMAX back in the day there. And figure out who the administrator is. Go to them and say, look, this is what I'm trying to do. I want everyone to be able to have access to things because, oh, people get squirrely. If they can't see what you're doing, mm-hmm. they start to make negative assumptions. If there is poor communication, it's human nature to default to making negative assumptions. So don't be that person who people are skeptical about. Be wide open. I am a clear pane of glass. I am not a heavy lead curtain. The same applies with writing code. So Mike, you had a question here for Mitch. 
as he sips his beer. Yeah, this is this is a this is this is a hard one. I got to put my hat on for a minute because we've all had that opportunity where somebody says, "Mike or Sean, yeah. we need you to write some documentation." And my first instinct now, knowing you, having conversations, having worked with you in the past, is, "Could we please just hire Mitch?" And now I have to pitch you. And one of the rules is always never sell yourself through someone else because they'll never be able to do it as well as you can. What are some of the best arguments that can be made in favor of hiring a technical writer? All right, so it's not just me, as much as I love to wave my own flag and blow my own horn. For any technical writer, it's like we were talking about earlier. You're hiring them for their expertise in communicating. They are a translator. They can look at a huge volume of information and very cleanly and very clearly digest it into bite-sized chunks. They reduce it to that lowest common denominator. And if you want someone who can get the point across, who can take work off of your senior developers, your senior network administrators, your application developers, can take weight off their plates, then a technical writer is definitely the person to go with. You would want a seasoned technical writer there, definitely somebody who has been out in the trenches there. I'm going kind of off on a bit of a tangent here, but to the rookie technical writers there, go and work in a company first, earn your stripes, figure out how the world works before you go into a contractor role. Now, back into what you were saying there. You're playing to their key strengths. Your strength is development. My strength is communication. So if we need to communicate, get the person who's the better communicator. I wouldn't dream of trying to sit down and write lines of code because I don't know how to do it. Let's play to my strengths or a technical writer's strengths. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah I love that. Yeah. We don't have those types of communication skills. I often struggle sometimes to send an email if it's external. It can take me two hours to write two paragraphs sometimes. Oh, I love because the modesty. Actually, I'm surprised. Uh, for for a podcast that we talk about I've communication a lot, but it's tough. Yeah. I've been there too, dude. I've been there too. If I'm talking to a senior person, a CIO, uh, some senior level person, I have agonized over every word that I've put down, I've rewritten it, rewritten mm-hmm. it, just because I'm OCD whack job. <laughs> I have my moments. Interesting. I, I never struggled with that, but I I think at one point I did convince myself that, yeah, these upper management people, they're all people too. They all have mm-hmm. things going on in their lives. And it's like what they say when you do improv, just imagine everybody naked. <laughs> imagine that CEO probably has to do their dishes, probably has kids, probably has things in their life, just like you do, probably has to take a shit at 2 p.m. after they finish their meetings. <laughs> like, it just doesn't really matter as much as we think it does, but it does matter if you hurt somebody's feelings, right? That's not cool at all. But I think to say that we don't have communication skills really is not fair to developers because I think we do have, I think that's part of what we try to do in this podcast is to help developers to empower them to have those communication skills where they can go into the workplace, you know, those soft skills to communicate with their bosses, their CEOs, with whoever, their project managers specifically, and say, look, this is a problem and this is what I think we need to do Mm -hmm. and this is why. And by the way, I'm feeling this way or whatever. This is what we should do right now. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying there. And uh, if I have misinterpreted or mischaracterized, I certainly apologize. There are different types of strengths. There are different types of intelligences. 
you can communicate through the writing of your code. You can be a communicator in a way that you know your boss understands exactly what you're saying. But when it comes to written communication, that's where I'm going to say that the technical writer has the benefit of the doubt there. Well, you have the training, you have the experience, you have the practice. Yep. And when it comes to writing code, you want all those things when it, for writing code. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily for writing documentation for the end user, for example. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't dream to do my own plumbing. I would hire a plumber to do it. I could cite a hundred examples to follow that. I would have been a plumber if I wasn't writing code, (laughs) so I should probably not jump in on that topic. One of the things that, uh, okay, yeah, I'm not going to jump in on this. No, please do. I'm curious now. I've always had a a do-it-yourself type of Mm -hmm. anarchist type of approach to everything that I do and having just flipped a house and having done all the work myself. Having the capacity to do those types of things Mm I think really empowers you as a homeowner oh, to, yeah. to understand a little bit more about the responsibilities that you have just to maintain your home. Yeah, no, and that's if you have that skill set, then great, all the power to you. I recognize that I do not, and I'm okay with that. That's fine. And so I just hire somebody else to do it. I'm, I'm very happy to hire somebody else to write documentation because it's a skill set that I do not have. Well, you might feel happy about it, but what other businesses who say, well, now I have to hire one more person. We already have software developers who can kind of do this. And what's the point of hiring a specific person dedicated to writing documentation when I can just ask one of my software developers, maybe yeah, the one yeah, person who that, does that, right? I like the fact that you brought that up because that's something I've faced since day one. And what do you want to create at the end of the day? Do you want to create a solution that solves business problems? Or do you want to create a dust gathering piece of crap that no one reads? <laughs> wow. Salesperson yeah. right in action there. I love that. Yeah. Double bind. It's, it's bang for your buck, honestly. I think you, you, know, you hire somebody to yeah. go and write code and then you uh, do you want to pay them to write documentation? That doesn't make any sense to me. They don't have the skill set for it and they're not writing code when they're writing documentation. It's bang for your buck. Yeah, the argument is kind of like, well, you can only really do one thing very well. And so focus on the one thing that you can do very well. If you are a software developer, then take the time to really refine the software as opposed to spending the time documenting it. Do what you do well. Yeah, and I would say judge me by my deliverables. And I'd be very comfortable sliding my deliverables across the table there Mm -hmm. and say, look, do you feel that that brings value? Did you get your money's worth from that? If the answer is yes, well, then that justifies the cost. That's right. And it also justifies bringing me back. That's right. Because you got to do those maintenance acts. I am consistent and I am repeatable. Right. Sounds like magic almost the way that you can hire somebody and all of a sudden you have all of this documentation written and in a concise way that other people can follow. Is it always that simple or do you have any hiccups when you enter the process of taking oh. over where developers left off? Oh, I mean, that's, that's uh, great questions that you're raising there. When you're good, it makes it look easy, Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it, it can be a torturous process. And you're trying to accommodate the schedules of a great many people. It's like I was saying earlier in our conversation with the SMEs. This guy can, is only available at 5 in the morning. Oh, sigh. Okay, I will do it because I need his information for this deliverable to be successful. He's the only one who knows how to do this one particular thing. So I do it. Well, when we do documentation, we were just talking to you for some tips and advice out in the weeds, hmm. colors, headers. Yeah. Man. These are things that 
software developer doesn't know coming out of the gate. Okay, yeah, sorry. You're going to have to have some investment there. There is a process. There's that book, The Tentacle Writing Process. Um, The guy's Irish first name, it was Kiernan something, and I'll I'll email it to you later on tonight. Link in the show notes. That book is absolutely worth it. Is it a cheeseburger or a Big Mac? That book is a Subway sandwich. Oh, Oh, okay. And it gives you the process. You just follow the process and repeat it. You just do the same thing over and over and over again. And if there's a process that's repeatable, that inspires confidence in your subject matter experts and your stakeholders. And you can be like, yeah, been there, done that. And some of these people are like, well, what is your process? And you're like, okay. I mean, you guys have the software development process. Right. SDLC, is that? Hmm? Oh, the software development life cycle? Yeah. Oh. There's that. And there's the same thing for creating documentation there. And it, it just doesn't change. There can be problems when there's no business analyst because somebody, oh, I don't want to spend money on business analysts. They don't get the right requirements. And you find out 80% of your way through that, oh, we have to go back and change this, this, and this. There's that. So if you poorly scope something, then you're going to run into roadblocks and hiccups and stuff like that. If you scoped it properly, you follow that process, you have engaged people on the project, the SMEs, the stakeholders, what have you, you're good. So I love how you're kind of giving us the tools to write our own documentation, but you're also saying, look, I can make this a lot easier for you. And I think that's a pattern that I see a lot with the most successful sales pitches, right? They, they say, look, this is what you need to get to solve your problem. You can do it yourself. You know, like I met this guy who was t- trying to sell me uh, window cleaning services. And he said, I said, well, what, what's stopping me from going and cleaning my windows? And he said, well, I, you're not going to clean your windows. You're here right now. And I said, oh, that's a really fair point. Yeah. Well, but to my credit, I actually went like the next day after I actually cleaned my windows. So <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> it's funny uh, because it was a challenge. But anyway, the point is that he's being honest. And I think that's the best kind of person you want on your team, right? The person who, who honestly tells you this is what you need to do. And these are the steps you need to take to accomplish that, to solve that problem. But also, I can solve it way faster than you probably ever could. But I'm, I'm telling you, this is how you can do it. And go yeah. ahead and do it. Yeah, like, because I know, Mike, I know Mike could do it. But is that the best use of Mike's time? Right. Right. Is yeah. Mike's time better spent coding? Exactly. So there, there's a big push now I've seen in professional development to train people to be able to do technical writing, to run them through these courses and stuff. And hey, that's great all the power to you. I'm more than happy to help you out there, but if you really want it done, come to me. I appreciate that so yeah. much. It's a really great sales pitch there. Um, before we end- Shameless and undignified <laughs> sales pitch. You know what? That leads us really well. Um, how, how can our listeners find you? And if they are interested in your services, how can they reach you? All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, you can go to cohorttechcom.com. That's C-O-H-O-R-T-E-C-H-C-O-M-M dot com. That's short for Cohort Net Technical Communications, which is my company. Uh, you could check me out on LinkedIn as well. Just look for Mitch Willis. And if that doesn't work, talk to Mike. Mike knows how to get a hold of me. <laughs> yeah, 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 Mitch is connected to me on LinkedIn. If you're connected to me because of the show, you can find Mitch on my network. All right, last question for you here. Mm-hmm. 
so we've talked about some of the tips for writing documentation. There's a book that we can all reference mm-hmm. as well. We'll put that in the for show the notes process, yeah. for the process. Now, what kind of final tips could you give to existing software developers who might have the task of writing documentation? Their company may not have the ability to afford a specific technical writer. What other tips might you be able to give the software developers to improve their documentation? Okay, so first thing I would say is get that book, The Technical Writing Process, yeah. which we'll put in the notes there. And then the second thing is what I mentioned earlier. Who is your audience? Understand who they are. Take some time to understand who they are. Are they male? Are they female? What's their education levels? How old are they? What assumptions are they going to make? How are they going to digest this information? What resistance will they have to this? Like I mentioned earlier there. One of the worst mistakes you could make is not understanding who the audience is for your product. Understand that. Invest the time and effort. You're busy. You're doing a thousand and one things. Your boss is adding more and more and more to your plate. But to not understand who you're creating this stuff for, that's just a bad, bad movie. It's a hashtag fail. Okay. I love that idea, but I realize as well, having entered in certain situations where I was tasked with providing documentation, that a lot of times there's this invisible wall between you and the stakeholders. And as a developer, you don't really have that authority to reach out to find out who your customers even are because you're working in such a large enterprise corporation that you don't have access to those people. Even talking to them would be something that the upper management doesn't want you to do because they fear that you don't have the capacity to communicate as a developer. So what would you suggest for enterprises and large companies that don't necessarily allow communication to outside stakeholders or their potential users who would be reading the documentation, for example, if it's API documentation or something like that, or maybe user flow documentation that ends up released into the hands of customers, but you don't actually have access to those customers. What well, can you do as a developer? Well, I mean, where there's a will, there's a way. If you got a marketing department, talk to them. Okay. You know, when you guys are at a trade show, who comes to the booth? Who are you giving out the brochures to? Okay. Who gets the fridge magnets? Oh, yeah. Spending time with the sales guys in your organization is a really great experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Usually they also have a company credit card. Yeah. Bring them Red Bull. Yeah. Because they love Red Bull. And, you know, these are guys who, you know, don't waste their time. Mm-hmm. Get in there, ask them questions and get out because they are judged, obviously, by how much they sell. If they don't make their quota for that quarter, they're gone. Mm-hmm. But if you've been around a place long enough, you know who does what. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going into the bathroom. They're coming out of the bathroom. Hey, I need to talk to you when you come out. Okay, blah, 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 to solve my problem. Oh, you just talked to so-and-so. He knows what's going on. Right. And you go off and you go off and have lunch with him. You know, if your management's saying, you shall not speak to anyone, there's ways around it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Adapt, improvise, and overcome. Love it. Words of wisdom. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Mitch. I really You're welcome, this. guys. Thanks for having me. This is yeah. my first podcast, and it has been pretty cool. <laughs> right on. Thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate that. All right. Hey folks, Mike here. Got a bit of an outro for you today. Wanted to let you know that once again, this episode has been brought to you by just Sean and I. Because we love technology and we care about developers. We know how hard this career can be and we wanted to do whatever we could to help you navigate your whole career or just a single uncooperative confusing line of code. If you've found this or any other episode helpful, please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your podcasting platform of choice. If you have any questions and would like to get in touch with us, you can join us on our Discord at bit.ly slash web perspectives. That's bit.ly slash web perspectives. 
This isn't to say that we wouldn't love to team up with a sponsor. We just haven't had that opportunity yet. 